We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. So tonight is the last sermon in a series that we've called Authentic Christianity. Now last week, we looked at the first half of Luke chapter 9. And kind of toward the end of the message, we zoned in on one verse in particular, verse 23, where Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Last last week, we looked at this. This is a very difficult condition that Jesus places upon anyone, he uses this conditional word, who would become an authentic Christian. Deny yourself. To follow Jesus, you must set aside the relationships, the extended family, the inner circle of friends that give you your identity. Jesus is saying in, a, in an oriental culture, deny yourself. Deny what your culture tells you is your identity and who you are. You've got to be willing to deny your identity as a housewife, as an Auburn fan, as a businessman. No longer can you look to that as your identity. Your identity must come from being a follower of Jesus. And then he says, take up your cross daily. When someone was sentenced to death by crucifixion in Jesus' time and in his place, the criminal would immediately be given a cross beam that he would have to carry from the place of sentencing to the place of execution. And Jesus says that journey between sentencing and execution, that's where an authentic Christian lives every day of his or her life. Every day of your life, you must live as if you've been sentenced and you're on your way to your death and you are dead to this world and you're a dead man walking to your dreams and your agenda and your plans and everything that you have kind of put forth as your future. And you must renew this decisive act of self-renunciation every day. And anyone who wants to be an authentic Christian has to follow Jesus in these ways. Now, that was where we focused toward the end of last week. So as we move into the the second half of Luke chapter 9, a very important and very basic question we need to ask is why? Why would I do that? Why would I deny myself? Why, Why would I, on a daily basis, choose the attitude of death. Why would I die to my dreams and my plans and my desires? Why would anyone go against their own nature? If that's a non-negotiable for following Jesus, and if following Jesus is a non-negotiable for authentic Christianity, then a really important question I think right here is, why in the world then would I pay such an extreme price to be a Christian? And that brings us to Luke chapter 9, verse 28, the transfiguration. This passage that Gates read for us just a few minutes ago. And in this passage, we see two 
basic reasons for anyone paying the extreme price required of authentic Christianity. First of all, because of who Jesus is. In this scene, over and over, Jesus is identified as God. First, it's in the actual transfiguration of Jesus, this kind of temporary change in which Jesus starts like glowing and his clothes are dazzling with rays of lightning, this glorify glorification. Luke's point is not that Jesus is experiencing some sort of internal adjustment as much as he's trying to say that Jesus' true inner being is being unveiled. The transfiguration of Jesus is not a changing of Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus. This is the real Jesus. This is Jesus. Just a few minutes before, when, or eight days actually before, in verse 26, Jesus had said, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. And then eight days later, the disciples get a foreshadowing of what that will look like. In other words... This is Jesus, if you could see him as he truly is. This is a way of saying that Jesus really is God. And then down in verse 30, these two visitors, Moses and Elijah, these guys represent the entire Jewish scriptures. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And what they're doing is they are testifying that the glorification of Jesus is the true Jesus. What they're saying is the whole Old Testament affirms he is the same God that we talked about. They are there as witnesses. This was a basic of Jewish society that nothing could be established except by two or three witnesses. So here is all of Judaism witnessing that the glorified Jesus is truly God. And then down in verse 35, this voice from heaven saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. We're not going to take time to go into it. But when he says my son, he's referring to part of Old Testament scripture. When he says my chosen one, he's referring to part of Old Testament scripture. And when he says listen to him, it is a direct quote of the passage that Ross read about the prophet who will be like Moses, listen to him or it will be required of you. In other words, God says three different things. Jesus is the one the entire Old Testament promised about all over the place. He is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. Christianity speaks in, in one and the same breath. It says there is one God and Jesus is the son of God and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of God. And so Christianity affirms over and over that God is a trinity. He's one being who exists eternally in three persons, the father, the son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the son, the second person of the trinity. He's God. Why in the world would I deny my nature in order to be an authentic Christian? What makes authentic Christianity so impressive that I should cut against the grain of my own nature that on a daily basis I should deny myself? It's because it's the truth. As arrogant as that claim sounds, it's the only thing that can justify what Jesus is asking us to do. 
The only thing that can justify someone asking you every day, die to yourself, is if the one asking you that is your creator. That's the first reason the transfiguration follows on the heels of this very harsh statement. It's to say, here's the reason I have the right to ask this of you. Now, the second reason that we should pay the incredible price required to be a real Christian comes up in verse 30. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Now, if you have a Bible and you like to write in it, that word departure, you should underline because it is loaded. It is the key word of the whole scene. Now, to help you understand that, I've got to give you a bit of background. The Jewish scriptures, Christians call them the Old Testament. Luke, the part of the Bible we're reading, that's called the New Testament. At the heart of the Jewish scriptures, at the heart of the Old Testament, is the story of God making himself known to the world by saving Israel from slavery to Egypt. That is the central story of the entire Old Testament. Let me say it again. At the heart of the Old Testament, at the heart of the Jewish nation, at the heart of the Jewish scriptures, is the story of how God revealed himself to the world by intervening in Israel's affairs. They were slaves in Egypt. And by rescuing them from Egypt and setting them free in that Story is called what? The Exodus. Okay? And just remember that. Luke's Gospel. The passage we're reading tonight. This was originally written in Greek. And the Greek word he uses, drum roll, for Jesus' departure is Exodus. Literally, that's the Greek word. I haven't even translated it into English. That's how you pronounce it in Greek. Exodus. And, and, and as a Greek word, Exodus has two basic meanings to any Jew. Number one, a euphemism for death, right? They gathered with him to speak of his upcoming Exodus from this world, right? Exodus from the body. He's about to be out of here, right? We have euphemisms for death, right? Passed away, kicked the bucket, you know, just pick them. Exodus is a euphemism for death. So there, Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about his upcoming Death in Jerusalem, it also means, number two, the foundational event in the life of Israel. The exodus of Israel from slavery to Egypt that constituted them as a nation. Now, when Luke says that Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about his exodus, he means both of these things. About Jesus' upcoming suffering and death, but also... This is unbelievable. Luke is saying that in the first exodus, Moses led the Israelites out of slavery to Egypt into the promised land. And in Jesus's ministry and death, which is the new exodus, Jesus will lead all of God's people out of slavery to sin and death and home to the promised land of their inheritance, which is the new creation. In other words, the second reason that I should even entertain the possibility of dying to myself, denying my own dreams and pleasures and ideas. The first is because the one asking me to do it is the creator. The second 
is because of what he's doing and what he's done and what he is accomplishing. His life and ministry is suffering and, resurre- and rejection and death and resurrection. This is the new exodus. But here's the deal. It's no longer an exodus just for one nation. No, all of a sudden, now we see that the original exodus was a prolepsis, a foreshadowing, just a taste, just a smidgen, just an appetizer of what the real exodus is going to be. The whole cosmos escaping slavery. All of creation, every square inch that the Hubble telescope has ever gazed upon, all of it being set free from bondage to destruction and sin and death. Jesus, in other words, is inaugurating the end of the world as we know it. The world's long-suffered captivity to sin and despair and death and brokenness is over. The credits have rolled on it. The time is fulfilled in Christ. God's kingdom is here to stay. Jesus has kick-started a radically new state of affairs for the entire cosmos. And God's reign is over all and will be in all and you can't stop it. Now, do you see that when you call the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus... The new exodus, do you see how this expands the notion of salvation way beyond issues of personal guilt with regard to sin? So why should I deny my very nature in order to be an authentic Christian? Why don't I just do something else that doesn't cost nearly as much pain? Because that's the ticket to the new exodus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's once and for all promise to Israel to bring shalom to the universe, to bring peace to humans, to our relationships to one another, to our relationship to the created order, to our relationship with our God. And because Jesus is the only path to that fulfillment, that is the justification for paying whatever price He asks you to pay in order to follow him. And when he finishes this work, which he has irrevocably begun, when he finishes this work of ending evil and death and suffering, they will finally and forever be put to death, never more to be seen again. Holy cow. If you were just a little more pagan, you would think I've drank the red Kool-Aid. Problem is, we grew up here in the South where we've become inoculated. to What I just said, how do you know that's true? I mean, at at, at this point, we need to ask the most. I'm convinced that here in the South, we don't ask the most basic questions anymore. And a most basic question is who says To everything I just said. Who says this universe is going to be healed? Who says Jesus affected something that was cosmic wide? How in the world can anyone actually believe this stuff? That Jesus is God and he's delivering the universe from brokenness forever. And one day there will never be death again. Now follow the logic here. To be an authentic Christian, we must follow Jesus. 
To follow Jesus, we must deny ourselves and die to ourselves and die to this world. Why would anyone do such a thing? Because this cat who lived 2,000 years ago is God. Do you understand how crazy that sounds? And not only is he God, but he did something. He actually physically did something that is making everyone and everything new once and for all. And if you believe that, then you're a part of authentic Christianity. So my question that I think we all need to learn to ask, how does anyone actually believe such a crazy thing? Such an absurd claim. Such an irrational, counterintuitive claim. And to that question, the transfiguration of Jesus provides an astounding answer. First of all, in the transfiguration of Jesus, we see the foregrounding of a very basic assumption that is foundational to authentic Christianity. It's an assumption that some of us are so comfortable with, it didn't even strike you as strange when Gates read it earlier. It didn't even measure a blip on your radar. But for others, it's a deal breaker. It's a non-starter. And the assumption is this. Authentic Christianity assumes there is a God And he crosses over from his realm of existence into ours and actually communicates truth about who he is and what's going on in this world. That is a basic assumption. That there is a God. Lots of people are okay with that. But this passage assumes that God crosses over into the human realm and communicates Not just ooey-gooey general universal feelings, but a particular truth about who he is and what's going on in this world. And many of our friends who do not embrace the Christian faith, we need to talk to them about that. Because at that point, they think you've drank the red Kool-Aid. Secondly, this passage teaches that for someone to have a true knowledge of who Jesus is, a true knowledge of his once and for all work to heal the cosmos. For someone to actually understand that and to believe that, the only way for them to understand and believe it is that if God himself tells them it's true. In other words, in the transfiguration, we see that unaided human intellect Cannot grasp the truth of Jesus. Let me say that again. In the transfiguration, I'll show you where this comes out in just a minute. We see that unaided human intellect, it doesn't matter where you are in the numbers, you know, the IQ numbers, that unaided human intellect cannot grasp the truth of who Jesus is and what he's doing. Let me show you what I mean. The transfiguration teaches this in a very powerful way. At the beginning, the emphasis is on the sense of sight. Over every single verse, 
it comes up. Look at verse 29. About eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. 28, I mean. Now 29. And as he was praying, the appearance. Now that's a sight word, right? If you're reading literature and you're a good reader and you see the appearance, you're supposed to see in your mind the appearance of his face. That is a description of his sight. Of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Now look in verse 30. And behold... Now, let me stop right there. In the Old Testament and New Testament, not every time, but almost every time you come across the word behold, it is the narrator, the author in this case, telling you, the reader, to see what he's about to show you, to use your imagination to picture it. Okay? So in verse 29, we have the sight described of what he looks like. And then in verse 30, Luke says to you, Luke, the author says to you, the audience, the listeners, the readers to look, to see Moses and Elijah with Jesus on the mountain. And then in verse 31, it says that Moses and Elijah appeared. There's a sight word again, appeared with him in glory. And then in verse 32, Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw, that's a sight word again, they saw Jesus in his glory. And verse 33, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tenths, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. Now, listen, that last phrase says, seeing is not enough. They saw, they saw, they saw, they saw, they don't know what they saw. Okay, do you understand the emphasis of the first part of the story is on sight and then it gets to the end of it and says not enough. (laughs) Anybody can see this and not understand it. And then we get to verse 34. What happens in verse 34? Let's have a little audience participation time. What happens to Peter and James and John in verse 34? What's that? A cloud overcomes them. Can you see in the middle of that cloud? No. In verse 34, they lose sight. The cloud overcomes them. They can no longer see. Seeing is no longer. And seeing wasn't enough. We know that, right? Because they saw, but they did not understand what they were seeing. Then they lose the sense of sight. And now what sense is engaged? In verse 35, the emphasis shifts from seeing to what sense? Hearing, Luke is making a point. He's saying the unaided human intelligence cannot comprehend Jesus without the voice of God. He's saying these guys did not understand the event, so God had to speak and give them the true interpretation of the event. What does all this mean? It means that the unaided human intellect cannot grasp the truth about Jesus, even if you see a miracle. Revelation from God must illuminate even what you actually see with your own eyes. Without God himself revealing to someone the truth about Jesus, authentic Christianity appears to be foolishness. Do you see that? 
Do you hear that? Authentic Christianity entails a belief in the meaning of certain historical events that is entirely outside the realm of possibilities for a modern person. You simply cannot appreciate and accept authentic Christianity without the light of divine revelation. That's what the transfiguration is showing us. We need to do apologetics. We we need to help remove all sorts of intellectual issues and address these things. And misunderstandings and confusion need to be cleared up. And past mistakes of the church and past errors need to be acknowledged. We must give a reason for the hope that lies within us. And yet, this can never be a substitute for a deep personal encounter with the living God. A person finally, at the end of the day, becomes a Christian not Because all of the intellectual hurdles have been cleared. But ultimately, because of the internal witness of the Holy Spirit through a direct encounter with God. If Jesus himself couldn't clear it up for the disciples, who am I? And now we've come to the end of our series on authentic Christianity. And we need to ask one last question. What now? If a person can only become an authentic Christian, if God himself reveals to that person the truth about Jesus, what should we as a church be doing? What should I be doing as a parent for my kids? What should you be doing for your friends? For your family. For those you know who do not accept authentic Christianity. What should you do? If you know someone, if you yourself, if you do not believe this stuff, what now? If it is God's burden to convince people of the truth about Jesus, what then are we to do? Throughout Luke chapters 6 through 9. We get the answer to that question. We should do exactly what Jesus did with the disciples. Luke 6 through 9, and then if we went on through 19, is Luke, the gospel writer, teaching you and me how to work with people who do not know Christ. The disciples have not converted. They continually miss it. And sometimes they get it and sometimes they don't. We should evangelize just like Jesus evangelizes the disciples. And here's what I mean. We should patiently initiate our children and our friends into the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is doing in the gospel. He is initiating the disciples, into the kingdom. Evangelism, the way that Jesus did it, is initiation into God's kingdom. To be initiated into the kingdom of God. It it means that you have an encounter with God and you find yourself drawn into His purposes for history and creation. Now, how does that happen? Through instruction, 
experiences, and rituals. All three. Think about it this way. Think about rush week in college. If somebody's trying to join a fraternity, what happens? They're initiated over the course of a week, right? Or and, and, and after that. And how are they initiated? Well, they're initiated through a certain common experience, hazing, whatever you want to call it, that is just what it means to be in this fraternity or this sorority, right? And they're initiated by learning certain pieces of information about the fraternity. And they're initiated by going through certain rituals. That's initiation. Think about how Robert is initiating his sons into hunting. He's giving them certain experiences, isn't he? Over a long period of time. And he's teaching them certain things about gun safety and how not to shoot each other. And how to identify the kind of ducks you don't get arrested if you shoot, right? And he's giving them certain rituals, you know, every year. Robert said, oh, we put up all our duck hunting gear. This is a ritual thing. They do it, I bet. And then at the beginning of hunting season, he's initiating his sons into hunting. We need to learn to see that the Gospels are a record of Jesus' initiation of the disciples into the kingdom of God. He's teaching them. He's giving them certain experiences. And he's instituting the rituals of the kingdom. And this is Heather's job with glory. And Sandy's job with Gates and Houston. And my job and Janelle's job with our children. And it's our job with our friends who don't know Christ. Initiation into the kingdom of God through instruction, experiences, and rituals. We, it, it, look at it this way. Some churches, the Episcopal Church. It's very good about the communal dimension of initiation. You join the church, you're a Christian. There's a sense in which joining this group is very important. Presbyterians are good at that. Lutherans are good at that. And then think about how Baptists and some Presbyterians, how they're good at the intellectual dimension of initiation. They're very clear about you've got to know some certain things in order to come into the kingdom. And so you go to their children's program. And what are they majoring on? The intellectual dimension of initiation into the kingdom of God. And then look at our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. They're very concerned about initiating people into the experiential dimension of the kingdom of God. And then look at our more liberal brothers and sisters who are very interested in their churches that when you come into the church, you are immersed in the public demands of the gospel for your neighbor and for the poor. This is the moral dimension. And think about the monks and nuns. This is, this is a dimension of Christianity. This is the spiritual discipline dimension. And they're very good about initiating people into that dimension. It, it would be helpful if we would initiate people into the full-fledged kingdom of God on all of these dimensions. When it comes to the moral dimension, our job with our children and our friends is to introduce them to the unique virtue of the kingdom of God that says you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself and you love your enemies. You initiate them into that. You teach them about that. We, we initiate them into the experiential dimension. This is why so many of the families in our church have sent their kids on mission trips. They're initiating them into experiencing the power of the kingdom of God. We teach the Apostles' Creed. 
We're, we're setting out before one another the minimum intellectual beliefs required of a Christian. You go on through the operational dimension, the gifts of the Spirit. Jesus sent the disciples out and said, operate in the power of the Spirit. This is initiation into the kingdom. Look at it this way. Our job is to prepare the world to receive Jesus. How do I prepare my children, my friends to receive Jesus as king? I initiate them into the life of the kingdom. That's what Jesus was doing. It's what we do with our children. We raise them in church. We send them on mission trips. We teach them. We, Heather's teaching our children to practice disciplines of fasting for Lent. What is she doing? She's initiating them into the life of the kingdom. And yet, authentic Christianity still requires that each person recognizes God has no grandchildren. Each person must find his or her way into the kingdom of God. And it does not count for authentic Christianity if you merely settle for a nominal relationship to the Christian faith. That is not authentic Christianity. It is not authentic Christianity if you appreciate Christianity as a splendid system of beautiful rituals that kind of mark birth and marriage and death. If that's all there is, you're not there. Like I said earlier, each of us must encounter God. And when you do, everything changes. When you do, suddenly, this stuff you've been being taught, you believe it deep deep in your intellect and your will and your heart and deep in your very soul, you believe in an inexplicable way that Jesus is God and is making all things new. Suddenly, you have a belief that's below and deeper and more fundamental than, than a mere intellectual belief. It's a confession. It's something that grips your soul. And all of a sudden, your whole soul bends around that belief. And suddenly, you not only believe it, but you have this deep response of total and faithful allegiance and loyalty. And you will even die for it. And suddenly one day you wake up and every aspect of your existence is seen in the light of Christ. And you've been initiated into the kingdom of God. And God has spoken to you. And you're an authentic Christian. And while we endeavor to do this, to initiate our friends into the kingdom of God, we can be at peace. Knowing that God is the primary agent of all of this. We can be sure that God is more committed to this than we are. We can be sure that God is irrevocably committed to achieving his purposes for his creation. How can someone follow Jesus? How can a person become an authentic Christian? What does it take for someone to move from civic religion to authentic Christianity, from skepticism, from disbelief, from doubt, from atheism, from cynicism? What does it take for a person to move from that to authentic Christianity? 
It takes you and I initiating them into the kingdom of God and God revealing to them the truth about Jesus and what he's doing in this world. Let's pray.